Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. Remember also that past performance, while relevant, is not a reliable guide to future performance. This week, I am joined by Andrew McHattie, the editor of the Investment Trust newsletter, returning to the podcast after a few weeks to discuss the latest news from the sector and the broader global picture. More from him in a moment. Meanwhile, central banks, interest rates and bond yields were once again the main story in the markets this week. The Federal Reserve, as widely expected, raised its key interest rate by 0.25% and hinted that it might not yet be done with its rate hiking cycle, although repeating that it would be data dependent in deciding on its next move. Economists, for the first time in months, said that they no longer expect to see a recession. The latest increase represents the 11th rate hike since March 2022 and takes the US core interest rate to its highest level since 2001. We're coming to the end of what has been the most uh, dramatic increase in interest rates in the US that anyone can remember for the speed and extent of it. That was as expected, but perhaps more interesting was the news that the Japanese central bank, faced with uh, Japan's highest rate of inflation for nearly four decades, would finally be loosening the bounds of its so-called yield curve control policy, leaving room for Japanese government bonds to rise by up to 0.5% above the current capped levels. That upper limit is not being removed, but they are introducing greater flexibility in how far they can move from the target rate. This news could have important implications for the yen and dollar, and also for cross-border capital flows. It was too early to tell from the immediate market reaction how that impact will play out. The Bank of England, meanwhile, which announces its latest interest rate decision shortly, when it's expected to increase rates again too, given how stubborn inflation remains in the UK, said it has appointed Ben Bernanke, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, to review its economic forecasting methods, which appear to be no longer fit for purpose given the bank's dire track record in failing to anticipate the surge in inflation we've experienced over the last two years. Equity markets, however, remained in mildly positive mood, helped by some encouraging second-quarter earnings results on Wall Street, with the S&P 500 index finishing the week with a 1% gain over the last five days of trading, while Nasdaq, the strongest performing market this year, was up another 2% on the week. The FTSE All-Share Index recorded a small but uh, positive return on the week, but the mid-cap FTSE 250 Index gave back 0.4% of its uh, previous gains. The Japanese equity market bounced back after the yield curve control news, And in the bond market, US bond yields were up across the length of the curve, although becoming less inverted in the process. Gilt yields, on the other hand, generally moved downwards. Commodity prices, notably, were generally higher, and in the case of copper and oil, are now back pretty close to the levels at which they started the year, a further indication of the perhaps surprising resilience with which the global economy has coped with the surge in inflation and consequent interest rate measures. The Investment Trust Index, through all this, uh, ended flat on the week. Asian and emerging market trusts were well to the fore on the positive side of the ledger, with three of the biggest China trusts up 9% on the week, and emerging market generalists up between 4 and 7%. 
Two trusts had announced their imminent intention to disappear, Aberdeen's smaller company's income, ticker ASCI, and the less well-known Boussard and Gavodon, a hedge fund vehicle. The first planning to disappear through a merger with another Aberdeen trust, the second, a managed wind-up, were also notable movers to the upside. We'll discuss them in a moment. Moving sharply in the other direction were some early-stage trusts such as Hydrogen One and Digital Nine, both down around 9% on the week, while many property and infrastructure trusts gave back some of their recent gains. Overall, the average discount on the Investment Trust Index remained unchanged at around 15.5%. Turning to company news, two more investment trusts in the Aberdeen stable announced plans to merge. Last week, we heard that Aberdeen New Dawn and Aberdeen Asia Dragon were planning to get together, and this week it was the turn of Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income, ticker ASCI, and Shire's Income, ticker SHRS, to combine forces. Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income, as its name suggests, is a UK smaller companies trust, which also though pays a significant yield, while Shire's has a slightly different mandate. Uh, it's a mixed equity and bond trust. The Board of the Income Trust announced earlier this year that following a strategic review and consultations with its largest shareholders, the message it got back clearly favoured a combination with another trust. And following a period of negotiation, terms have now been agreed with Shah's income, though better terms than Shah's itself had proposed when it put forward the idea of a merger earlier this year. Under the terms of the deal, which I discuss later with Andrew McHattie, The Income Trust expects to pay out the vast majority of its accumulated revenue reserves through a pre-liquidation dividend and repay its floating rate credit facility. None of the directors, in this case, of the Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income Trust will be offered seats on the Shire's board. The only issue, I think, from this particular merger proposal is whether this will be enough to secure the survival of the new combined vehicle, given that it will still only have a market capitalization of $130 or so, even if there is no take-up of the proposed all-cash alternative that investors will be offered. Sticking to the consolidation theme, we also heard from another Aberdeen Trust, Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth, ticket ADIG, where the board says it's received a number of attractive proposals following its announcement of a strategic review last month. But it's not yet in a position to tell us uh, what those uh, proposals are or who it's favouring, but it does say that its share buyback programme will be suspended for now and may be resumed in due course, depending on the outcome of this review process. Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth, which has a multi-asset mandate at the moment, has a market capitalization of around $250 million and offers a yield of 6.5%. So it could be an attractive target for a number of other managers, but it has struggled to find the right strategy. It's been something of a whirling dervish in terms of the number of times it's changed its policy and management in the last few years, and it remains unloved even after this week's update on a discount of more than 25%, although the shares were up around 4% on the week. There was more news too from MIGA Opportunities Trust, the special situations investment trust vehicle managed by Nick Greenwood since 2004, where the board has announced that it plans to move the mandate to run the trust to asset value investors, a well-known and respected management firm that already manages two other trusts, AVI Global, former British Empire Securities, and AVI Japan Opportunity Trust. Charlotte Cuthbertson, the former co-manager of the trust at Premier Maiton, has been working at AVI since July, and it's assumed that she will be joined in due course by Nick Greenwood, who set up Migo Special Situations, as I said, back in 2004, and uh, announced his impending departure from Premier Maiton 
the current manager of the trust earlier this year. The board says there'll be no change in discount control policy or fee structure, assuming that this deal goes through, as seems extremely probable. We finally heard something new also from the board of Home REIT, the scandal-ridden Housing for the Homeless Trust, whose shares have been suspended since January and whose accounts have yet to be fully audited, given a range of problems with the tenants and the agreements that back up its portfolio. Uh, More on this one too in a moment. Suffice it to say at this point that the proposed new manager is the large European property specialist AEW, which already manages the AEW UK Commercial Property Trust, can only get to work if the proposals for the new arrangements are approved at a general meeting on the 21st of August. After which, if that vote passes, there will be a, quote, stabilisation period of up to potentially two years, during which the new managers will attempt to sort out the existing mess of a portfolio. The trust only received 7% of its rent in the latest period, it said this week, which is a pretty shockingly small figure. And then the managers will start to plan a new policy of focusing on investing in properties with a much broader range of, quote, social use, and not just, therefore, accommodation for the homeless, its current objective. The board did also add, though, that it does not expect to publish audited results for the period to August 2022 until the end of this year at the earliest, uh, which means that the shares will remain suspended until at least that point by which time they will have been suspended and shareholders left essentially unable to do anything for nearly a year. This particular episode does remain a black mark on the reputation of the investment trust sector, since clearly there have been a series of things happening there that should not have happened. Leading the list of companies reporting annual results was Taylor Maritime Investments, ticker TMI, a shipping company which reported an NAV total return of 4.7% for the year to March 2023. The company said it's made solid progress on its aim to reduce leverage following its acquisition of a company called Grindrod, which more than doubled the size of its fleet of handy size and ultra vessels to 51 in total. Uh, the trust paid a dividend of 11 cents for the year, plus a special dividend of 2 cents, covered in total by 2.6 times by earnings. The board said it remains committed to reducing leverage following the acquisition, which will help to reduce interest costs, although the net debt to gross asset value ratio has not been helped by falling asset values. An attractive dividend yield here of more than 8% has not prevented the shares from falling to a discount of 40%, as charter rates for their vessels have been weak. But the managers of the trust say they've been deliberately minimising the length of the charters in anticipation of a recovery in markets in due course. Also reporting annual results was Invesco Asia, ticker IAT, which sits in the Asia-Pacific equity income sector. It reported a small positive NAV total return of 1.3%, well ahead of its benchmarks, a minus 6% total return, after a strong second half of the year. Notable here, though, that the discount widened during the year to beyond the board's 10% target, But in this case, the board says it is backing the manager's view that valuations have fallen to what have historically been very attractive entry points. So they'd have decided against share buybacks, possibly a brave decision. The 14.8p proposed dividend is not covered by the revenue return the trust achieved. This trust has an enhanced dividend policy paying out 4% of NAV per annum, and the current discount remains around that threshold level of 10%. Dividend issues also a factor at Henderson Diversified Income, ticker HDIV, 
a mixed bond and equity trust with a market capitalization of somewhere in the region of 125 million. It reports the NAV total return of minus 4% for its latest 12-month period against a benchmark return of minus 0.3%. Here, the board has been authorizing repurchase of shares at an average discount of 6.8%. It said the underperformance was largely due to its overweight in financials. It's paying a dividend per share of 4.4p, which is not covered by a revenue return of 3.8p per share. And the board said they acknowledge that they may need to call on capital reserves to sustain that dividend, despite these becoming, I quote, relatively depleted. And they say the risk of maintaining the yield is an area of increasing focus for the board. So clearly there are some concerns about the sustainability of the dividend on this one. Turning to interim results, we've had a number of well-known trusts reporting, uh, among them International Public Partnerships, ticker INPP, a £2.8 billion infrastructure trust, which said that it was raising its full-year dividend target to 8.13p for the full year 2024, continuing with the annual increases of 2.5% in dividend that is averaged since its IPO back in 2006. It says that even if no further investments are made, IMPP will be able to continue meeting its progressive dividend policy for at least the next 20 years, so secure are its expected cash flows. Prospective dividend yield here is now 6.1%. And there were interims also from Lord Debenture, ticker LWDB, NEV total return of 4%, slightly ahead of its all share index benchmark, 2.6% for the period to the end of June. And BlackRock Throgmorton Trust, ticker THRG, the UK Smaller Companies Trust, which had a very strong period for a while but has since struggled more, reporting a modest NAV total return of 0.1% for its latest six-month period. Not helped by the fact that one of the largest shorts that it has in its portfolio, this is a trust that not only buys shares expecting them to go up, but also takes short positions against those it thinks are undervalued. It was not helped by the fact that its largest short, the shares of that company, were suspended due to suspicions of potential fraud, but they have since been able to close out that short position with a 96% gain. Uh, The dividend yield here is 1.9%. If you want more details on all the latest announcements, as always, you can find them as a subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle on the Moneymakers website along with our normal summary of all the biggest share price, NAV and discount movements over the week and year to date. This week we have a profile of ICG Enterprise, the private equity trust, and that will be followed next week by a profile of BlackRock Frontiers Investment Trust. And I will also be completing my reviews of a number of individual investment trust sectors over the next few days. A slight delay there for technical reasons. So this week, I was able to catch up with Andrew McHattie, who is the editor of the Investment Trust newsletter and has been a follower of the Investment Trust scene for almost as long as I have. Seen it all before. Where do things stand since we last spoke, uh, Andrew? We are obviously seven months or so into the year. And well, I guess the mood music is a little better than it was perhaps uh, earlier in the year. Uh, What are your take on where we are and what's been happening in the Investment Trust sector as we look at it now? Yes, thanks, Jonathan, and it's nice to be back. Yes, the music has been rather grim, actually, for much of the year, but suddenly the tune changed a little, didn't it, with that inflation figure for June, which was better than expected. And suddenly sentiment did improve, although, of course, we'll only know with hindsight whether that truly was a turning point or not. 
And in the meantime, yes, I think it's much as before with investment trusts that we've seen some rationalization and consolidation in the sector. We've seen discounts remaining fairly wide. But of course, many trusts are just getting on with their business and producing actually quite reasonable returns in the background. So I think it's much the same as before for most investment trust investors who are just getting on and carrying on with their investment and their portfolios as normal. Indeed, given that uh, for most investors anyway, it's uh, a case of essentially buying and holding. You're buying investment trusts because of their long-term track record and potential performance. But the derating, I mean, the interesting thing is the derating at least seems to have stopped for now anyway. The average on the index widened out to around, I think, getting close to 18% at one point. It's come back in a little, a couple of points from there. And in particular, we've seen some improvement in the ratings of some of the alternative assets, which were the kind of the eye of the storm, if you like. So I guess you're hoping that this is actually is a turning point, as you say, at least as far as sentiment is concerned. Liquidity has been poor, of course, for many of these trusts, and it's not so much a case of more sellers and buyers, just an absence of buyers, I think, rather than <laughs> anything else. Yes, it's almost like there's been a buyer's strike, which is a phrase I've heard a few times now. And I think it's largely driven by interest rate expectations and this shock that we've had coming out of this zero interest rate period, which was quite a strange odd anomaly, I think, in an historical perspective. But I think the adjustment's been quite difficult. And I'd love to think that, yes, the derating has stopped. We'll have to see whether it has stopped or whether it's merely paused. But I think what was interesting for me was that when markets did bounce a little bit, it was the interest rate sensitive sectors that really led the way. So we saw gross capital trusts improving from a very low base, of course. So those have really suffered in the sell-off. And we also saw renewables infrastructure come up, and those are seen as something of a bond proxy to many investors. And of course, the real estate sector, which is the most interest rate sensitive of them all. And uh, that, of course, has been truly bonded out as a result of these interest rate expectations. But I think there's a lot of scope there for improvement And I'm quite hopeful. I'm pretty optimistic now because if we have genuinely seen a shift in the trend for UK inflation and therefore interest rate expectations, then there's a great deal of slack in the system here, a lot of latent value that is bursting and ready to be released. So um, let's hope that is the case. I think you're right. You mentioned the commercial property sector. That's, I think, it looks particularly interesting. I mean, the discounts there have come in. And some of them have gone to very uh, wide discounts indeed. Though, of course, I guess the issue here is there must be some concern also about the dividend capacity of some of these property trusts, given that they're often quite highly geared. And many of them had to cut their dividends during the pandemic. And they've only just begun to sort of claw their way back up to the levels they were before. But I guess the main threat to them now will be if we do get a recession or not. I noticed the other day a comment from one very experienced property investor that actually, you know, property is really all about economic growth. It's not just interest rates that uh, make a difference. They're, they're important in the short term. It's really more about economic growth in the longer term. And I guess that's still the big unknown for the property uh, sector. Well, it is. This is the big threat on the horizon that just as interest rate expectations turn and we start to see an improvement in sentiment, we then get hit by a nasty recession that undermines the revenue earning capacity of these trusts. Because if you listen to the managers speaking at present, They are on the whole quite optimistic and they tell you that the rent collection is very good across their portfolios and that they are not seeing tenants in distress. 
And uh, that all sounds great, but of course you always have to look forward. And if the result of this higher interest rate period is that we enter a recession or even just a much more difficult economic period, then you may see those revenues squeezed. Now, it's difficult to know how much slack there is in the system here and just whether these trusts can continue to pay their full dividends. We have seen one cut anyway from Target Healthcare, which rebased its dividend. And of course, that is the worry if you're buying these things for a high dividend yield, and then you find that the dividend is cut from under you. But I think uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. You can look at the figures in the annual reports and the updates from the managers to get some feeling for it. But ultimately, it hinges on the quality of their underlying portfolio and tenant base. Yes, I was interested for a couple of reasons to, uh, if you look, for example, the most recent announcement from AEW UK, which I think has the distinction of being the only investment trust, commercial property investor didn't cut its dividend during the pandemic. And a very good trust, I think, and one I like a lot. But it's offering a yield of about 8%. And its dividend will be uncovered for about two years by the time it gets to the end of this year, uh, which is slightly concerning, you'd think. However, that's a nice sort of way to lead one into talking about uh, the latest news from, unfortunately, one of the disasters of the year, which is Home REIT, where AEW, which is a very large commercial property company based in Europe, though not all investors in the UK might know that, and they've taken on the mantle of Home REIT, whose shares have been suspended since the start of the year. They've put out an announcement this week what did you make of that, uh, Andrew? I mean, there's no imminent prospect of the shares coming back from suspension, but uh, what do you think of this uh, new strategy that they've uh, outlined? I try to avert my eyes wherever I can in this case because it's such a terrible wreck, isn't it? And I think AEW are tremendously brave, actually, to take it on. So what's happened now is that HomeReach has announced the date of its AGM on the 21st of August, and shareholders will need to vote to establish AEW as the new managers. But that comes with a few clauses because AEW has laid out what it would like to do now. And it does involve some changes to the investment policy. So the plan is to introduce a stabilisation period for an initial two years, although it might be extended to three during which period AEW can effectively sift through the wreckage and see what it can rescue. And the plan is to re-tenant and to rationalise the portfolio. And in doing so, the managers need a bit more flexibility. So they're going to ask to change the mandate a little bit. So they're no longer tied to long lease lengths. And they can also move away from the homelessness remit for this interim period. That sounds quite sensible to me because there's clearly a great deal of work to do here. One other piece of news from the trust was that it had collected only 7% of its rent in May and June, which is quite extraordinary, but indicates just how much work the managers have to do here. So I don't envy them their task. And of course, as shareholders, you're being asked here to go down a, a brand new road and you don't really know where it's going to lead. But my goodness, it has to be better than where you've been. Yes, I think the other thing I noticed from that announcement was that they said they're not going to be able to finalise their accounts until nearly the end of the year, which means that they won't presumably be able to bring the shares back anytime soon. So by the time we get round to this, they'll be suspended for about a year at least. And that's not a very comfortable position to be in if you're an investor. Of course, at the moment, you've got nothing else you can do except sit there and worry about it. I suppose the issue will be when it comes to the general meeting, 
is there any alternative to what's being proposed by the board? You could say, well, let's wind it up, but that would be quite difficult given the idea behind the trust, which was to help the homeless. I mean, how would you wind it up without causing problems for the homeless who are already in the accommodation, even if they're not paying rent and so on? So it's it really is going to be a difficult vote because it's not entirely clear what other options there are. No, it's Hobson's choice, isn't it? I think you're exactly right. There's not really much choice at all, because if you don't ratify the changes and accept the change in management, then that's not going to happen. And then you're left with this really awful portfolio, which has all sorts of structural difficulties and debt and uh, tenants not paying rent. And someone's got to sort it out at some point. And as you say, for shareholders, I don't think that's a better option just to leave it and hope that something else happens, because actually a winding up could take years and you're unlikely to see very much money out of that at all, I would suspect. So my feeling is that it might be an uncomfortable choice, but it's probably the best one. Right. And the board has been in contact with some of the bigger shareholders, the wealth managers and so on, who have been invested in this. And they will have taken account of that uh, feedback, obviously, when they first appointed or proposed appointing AEW to deal with the mess. It's going to leave a stain on the investment trust sector. I mean, we discussed that last time. There's no doubt we haven't really got to the bottom of how we came to be in this mess with this particular trust. Uh, there have been allegations of various sorts, and uh, who knows where that might end. There may be some fallout from that as far as the original sponsors and managers are concerned. But at least the board is, is doing its job. They're more than earning their money, I think. And that, of course, brings us on to another general trend, which is how are boards reacting to the issue of the derating we've seen in particular, and some familiar questions about, is your trust big enough in the current climate? given the consolidations happening in the wealth manager sector and so on. We've seen quite a lot of evidence of boards actually grasping the nettle, and none more so perhaps than in the case of some of the Aberdeen trusts. We might talk about that. This week we saw another proposal for a merger between two Aberdeen investment trusts. Uh, perhaps you could tell us about that and then put that in context of what they've been trying to do. It's fascinating to follow this because there's quite a lot of talk about uh, turkeys not voting for Christmas and therefore boards not willing to vote themselves out of a job. But I don't think that's right, actually. I I think that uh, investment trust directors are a much better group of people than that. And I think as well that if you are a director and you're taking the right decisions to look after your shareholders, then people in the industry will notice that and you stand a much better chance of getting another job thereafter. But that aside, clearly some management groups have also been encouraging this rather more in, in terms of their interaction with the boards. And we've seen quite a lot of consolidation from Aberdeen, who really jumped into this trend with both feet. Uh, We've seen a number of their trusts now consolidating. That's the polite word for it. Disappearing is another. So one that released news this week was Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth, which only in June actually announced a strategic review and has already updated the market on this, saying that it's received a number of interesting proposals. So it looks as though something is going to happen with that one. And in the meantime, you can buy the shares on a 27.5% discount, which to me seems quite extraordinary. I'm, I'm surprised it had not narrowed further. There's something of a difficult portfolio there to integrate, so nothing is guaranteed, but that looks interesting to me. And then with two of the other mergers that have happened here, with uh, Aberdeen New Dawn merging into Asia Dragon Trust and now Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income merging into Shire's Income, I think there's an interesting wrinkle that maybe we haven't really talked about very much, 
which is that whilst ultimately all shareholders can benefit from these trusts consolidating and being larger and therefore saving on costs and being more liquid and attracting more investors, those are somewhat nebulous and long-term. And actually, if you're looking for short-term gains, then the shareholders in the smaller trust always benefit much more in the short term from these combinations. And that's really partly because they're tending to trade on larger discounts beforehand. But it's also to do with the cash exits that they're being offered. And those are not offered to the larger of the trusts in the merger. So in the case of Aberdeen New Dawn, you have a a right for a 25% cash exit at around 2% discount to NAV, which is actually quite attractive. And with Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income, you can have a full cash exit if you want to. And given that the two trusts are trading on a discount still of about 8% or so, if you're not wanting to continue your investment and if your focus was a bit more on the smaller companies element of that trust, then you can come out at more or less NAV. And that's a, a nice benefit for you that the shareholders and shires income don't have. Yes, that's an interesting one, as you say, and uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. And we saw something similar with the Asian Trust as well, I think. So, yeah, you're right. It's an interesting phenomenon. Of course, in the case of the Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income and Shires, which is another Aberdeen-managed trust, it's slightly complicated, isn't it, also by the fact that Shires actually has a, a stake in Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income, I think it's about 13%. So uh, they've kind of voting, if you like, they'll have to vote for this consolidation. It makes it actually harder for the shareholders of Smaller Companies Income to have done anything else other than to merge with this uh, other Aberdeen Trust. And of course, the question about this one is that it's still not going to create a very large vehicle once the uh, consolidation has gone through, even if everybody... Uh, declines the cash exit option, which won't be the case. Obviously, some will take the cash in the smaller trust. There's still only going to be about 130 million, which is pretty small by today's standards. So do you think this is just a sort of first step on what become a, another step to come? I don't know whether anything further will happen with Shire's income, but I think Aberdeen are just really deciding to tidy up their portfolio. And this is a fairly obvious thing to do. When Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income first mooted the idea that it might not continue as an independent entity, it was immediate that all analysts pretty much said, well, it's clearly going to merge with Shire's income. So I think that one was signposted quite well in advance. And I think it's a clear, rational thing to do. And one would now hope that, of course, Shire's income getting this boost will be able to grow its assets over time and grow organically. I think one interesting question that also arises is that if this rationalisation is to continue and some of these trusts are still too small, have Aberdeen now released the news on all of their trusts? And I've I've been looking at this because um, it's an obvious question that one might want to answer before thinking. Yes, exactly. You know, if you think, what else can I buy? And there is one other Aberdeen Trust that has been suggested as a potential candidate here, which is Dunedin Income Growth, which could combine with Murray Income, which is a larger trust. Now, that is on a different scale. So Dunedin Income Growth is not that small. It's already got £460 million worth of assets. But it does have quite a considerable portfolio overlap with Murray Income. Uh, And so that's why that possible combination could be on the cards. I don't have any information about that and it might not happen. But if Aberdeen are to continue, that one could be on the list. It's worth making the point that they do have a significant number of trusts, 21 altogether, I think, uh, looking at the list and 
Uh, obviously, some of them have gone already and others will follow. And you're absolutely right. I suppose there is a, a game going on a little bit of a spot the next one. And we'll see if that uh, is the case. That would be a big news. I mean, if they did do that particular deal, you know, Murray Income was really bulked up by uh, taking on another big trust uh, three years ago. And this would make it an even bigger beast. So that would be interesting. And there's also some talk, I think, that uh, Aberdeen as a house might be getting out of the private equity business, which might have implications for Aberdeen private equity opportunities. Now, you've been doing some research into the uh, private equity sector, or you've been following it, obviously, quite closely. What are your thoughts about that uh, particular sector now? Obviously, we've seen a big derating there as well, or at least uh, wide discounts have got wider, let's put it that way. What is your thinking about that sector now? We have seen a very big derating, and this is one of my favourite sectors, I think, as a result. And clearly, you're taking on a bit of risk here because these trusts are investing in unquoted entities, usually small companies, and those can be very much affected by the cyclicality of the global economy, of course. So there's no doubt that you would need to have a sufficient risk appetite to buy anything in this sector. But the discounts do look tremendous, and I think they've been very much affected by the sort of pervasive pessimism that's run through the sector over the last year. And so I think the sell-off has been quite indiscriminate, and there's a lot of very good value here that is, to my mind, indicating that valuations are going to come off very sharply. So you've got high-quality trusts here, such as HG Capital Trust on an 18% discount, Harbour Vest Global Private Equity on a near 40 discount, ICG Enterprise on 36, Pantheon International at 40%, the list goes on. And I rather agree with Helen Steers, actually, the manager of Pantheon International, who was asked about the discount recently and just said she was baffled by it, which I thought was a very nice word for it. I think these discounts are really indicating that asset values are expected to drop quite sharply. And that hasn't happened so far, and I don't think the outlook really suggests it's going to. I saw a bit of research this week from Stiefel that indicated that they felt the 30th of June marks, which are shortly to be announced, would generally indicate asset value changes in the range of plus or minus 5%. And if that is the case, then there's certainly no cliff edge here. And I think it doesn't take much of a change in sentiment, actually, for these discounts to narrow considerably. And just for fun, actually, I did a little bit of mathematics just to see how that might work out. It's quite nice to postulate some potential scenarios here. And actually, you don't need these trusts to perform brilliantly for you to get a really nice return. If they can increase their assets by a compound rate of 7% per year over the next three years, which I don't think is unreasonable, and you get a a rough halving of these discounts, let's say from 30% to 15%, then over three years you can make 50% on your money. Clearly that's an optimistic outlook and a nice scenario, but for me these discounts are, they're calling me. They're calling me, Jonathan. They're very attractive, I think. (laughs) Right. I don't disagree with you about that. I mean, the interesting point, though, has been that the discounts did widen last year as well. And a lot of people decided to say, well, this looks ridiculous. But actually, we haven't seen much change in sentiment over the last 12 months. So you could have said something similar a year ago, maybe. But um, I guess the good news is that some of the bad things that people said would have happened by now have not happened by now. In other words, some forced sales or so on. 
But I guess it's still a question for the boards of these trusts. Uh, some of them are proposing share buybacks uh, and started to do them. Not always easy in private equity, but that hasn't had much effect. Pantheon being one of those, I think, hasn't had much effect so far. And I guess the general mood I get when talking to professional investors about this is that they really do want to see the private equity trust making some realizations, proving the net asset values of, of what they've got, because there is still this widespread concern about whether valuations are fair or not or, or reasonable in the light of what's been going on. But with the stock markets generally rising, you know, quite strongly ahead of expectations, you would think that some of that would have unwound by now, but uh, we still haven't seen it. So do you think that there is an issue around the strategy that the boards have taken in response to this significant derating? Not so much. And, and the reason I don't think that is that this is not a new sector. So this is not like infrastructure where actually we haven't really been through the cycle here before. And I think it's reasonable to have some scepticism about some of the valuations. In the private equity sector, we've been here many times before. And actually, through the cycle, these trusts have proved that they can continue to sell assets on average at values much above their valuations. And so I think their conservative valuation policies are well baked in, actually, and we, we ought to understand those by now. And clearly, one could be wrong, and there could be a period where they struggle to sell assets at their valuations. But I think on the whole, they've managed to do that over quite a long period. And we have seen some buybacks actually pursued a little more aggressively in this sector. So Harbourvest Global Private Equity was given the the scope to buy back $25 million of shares, and they immediately jumped in the market and bought back, I think, $18 million. And that has had an effect. The shares are up 11% over the last month. And so I think if the buyback policy is implemented skillfully and quickly and aggressively, then it can have some effect. And you're right, Jonathan, that actually many people would have said six months ago or a year ago, these discounts look wide. I think I probably said that myself. And of course, there's always a danger when you're buying these unloved sectors that you're wrong and you continue to be wrong for quite some period. But actually, I'll come back to something you said earlier about the long-term nature of most investment trust holdings, that if you're looking through this period and looking three to five years ahead, then I think it's perfectly reasonable to make these assumptions that these discounts may well come in. They've done so before. As I said, this is not a new sector. This is not a new phenomenon. We've been here before, haven't we, Jonathan? We certainly have, for sure. And of course, you're right about that long-term message. Another possible area where that could have implications and a read-through from past experiences in the UK smaller companies sector, where, again, we've seen those discounts go out very wide, as wide as they normally go during the worst sell-offs. And everybody started saying a year ago, well, they look quite good value, but actually that hasn't happened yet. But there are signs even there now that sentiment towards that sector is also improving a little. And uh, who knows, you know, the UK may actually become marginally less unloved than it has been uh, as a destination for professional investors, at least. What are your thoughts on the smaller companies? Are there any particular trust there that uh, catch your eye for looking like good value, given your kind of time well, uh, frame? Three years yes, I, I think there's value across the board there, really. And again, it's not unusual. My sense with smaller companies' trusts is that 15 to 20% is always a nice, comfortable 
NAV discounts to buy those. And so actually, I was quite surprised when they did narrow so much a couple of years ago, when the whole sector was so much more highly rated. Uh, Easy for me to say that with hindsight, of course. But now I think the valuations look quite decent. And so I think it's a case of really picking quality here. This is, of course, an area where the management skill is really paramount. And so I tend not to look for the widest discounts necessarily in this sector. I'm really looking for those proven managers who've been through the cycle before and uh, can achieve very good returns. And over recent times, so I would say top of the pile is Addisian Investment Trust, which actually is not on a wide discount, but that has done very well. And Rockwood Strategic is another one in the Harwood stable that has also fared very nicely, actually, over recent times. But if you're looking for a more generic, broadly spread UK smaller companies trusts, then those managed by BlackRock, for example, I think are interesting. And uh, there's quite a lot of value there. There are a couple of trusts I don't like, but I don't think I'll name those now. But um, again, I think the key is to be selective and to look at the managers. That's uh, always a good idea. So and also just looking at your kind of general trust that you're thinking of interest, anything else that really sort of stands out across the sector as a whole that uh, has piqued your interest in particular or looks either good value or bad value or undervalued or overvalued? Anything else you could like to throw into the mix at this point? It's not so easy to find things that are bad value at the moment because so many things are cheap. And that is often a question I'm asked, actually, what should I sell? Because it's all very well having all of these great buying ideas. But of course, for many of us who don't have lots of spare cash, you need to sell something. And that's that's a much trickier question. But I think at the moment, the balance of interest is clearly on the buy side because there are so many wide discounts available. And um, to some extent, you're a kid in a sweetie shop at the moment. And there's lots there. I think if you're an income investor and you're interested in the dividend flow, then right now you can lock in so many attractive yields of up to 10%. I mean, perhaps seven or eight is a reasonable benchmark. And um, of course, you do have to be very conscious of the fact that you're, you're thinking about your future dividend flows here. So you want those to be maintained. But there's a lot of, I think, very solid trusts that are offering those kind of yields. And I think the infrastructure sector is an obvious port of call there, where things like the digital infrastructure trusts, which are trading on wide discounts, and uh, in the case of Digital 9, the yield is 10.6. It's quite interesting. Triple point energy transition is another one that is, I think, slightly speculative, but has an 8% yield. And actually, even if you really don't want to take that much risk and you prefer to stay in some of the more mainstream names in the infrastructure sector, there's some good value there. So I did notice a note from Investec this week on international public partnerships, which has a 5.8% yield now. And that's had 15 years of dividend growth now consistently. And the note said that its projected cash receipts from its portfolio indicate that it can maintain that progressive dividend for at least the next 20 years. So if you're a long-term investor thinking about growing your dividends, I think that kind of thing is very attractive now. So I think that covers off the income side for me. And if you're looking for capital growth, then I think if you're bold enough, there's some value to be had in the growth capital sector. And we have actually seen some little signs of growth there. So I've been following Seraphim Space Investment Trust, for example, which was a terrible casualty of the sell-off. 
But actually, that's bounced very strongly and got up from a low of about, I think, 25 pence or 27 pence. And it's just over 40 pence today. So we've seen a significant bounce there. And of course, that may be a a false friend and may not signal anything to us. But I think it's interesting. And things like Chrysalis Investment Trust, I think, if you're bold enough, could promise some decent future returns. Very good. So nice to hear quite a lot of optimism there from Andrew McHattie, editor of the Investment Trust newsletter. And I find a lot of his arguments quite convincing, to be honest, from a personal perspective. But we will find out, of course, whether the prices we can see out there in the investor trust sector, uh, the big discounts in many cases, are actually great buying opportunities. We'll know in due course. But for the meantime, thank you, Andrew, for your time and wisdom as always. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.